So a number of years ago, my son Elijah was maybe five, and he started waking up in the middle of the night screaming that his legs hurt. And then we noticed on the side of his thigh, he had this bullseye rash. So you Google those and it's like Lyme's disease. So we took him to Dr. Abdener and he kind of looks at him and thinks he's got to have his blood drawn. So I said, okay, um, so head over to the hospital and get his blood drawn. Well, Elijah, he's about four and a half, five. He hears blood drawn and in his brain, he's trying to like blood drawn. So on the right over there, he's like, dad, what does it mean to have my blood drawn? Does it involve crayons? I said, well, no, it doesn't. Well, dad, um, what does it mean? I said, well, they need to get some of your blood out of you. Hmm. Dad, how do they do that? I said, very carefully. (laughs) No, dad, I mean, how do they get my blood out? I said, well, bud, they take a needle and they put it in your arm and that's how they get the blood out. He said, is it gonna hurt? I said, yeah, it's probably gonna hurt. And he said, can they take yours instead? <laughs> I said, no way, they're not poking me with a needle, bud. <laughs> we had to find out if he had a disease in order to heal him. In this section, really from chapter 12, we're in chapter 17, but from chapter 12 through chapter 24, judgment comes and it's God saying, I'm gonna draw some blood because Jerusalem has this illness and I'm gonna cure it. So that's kind of this chapter, it's, it's amazing, but it's as if God in the drive over to the hospital, the people of Israel are like, this is unfair. So that's chapter 18. Like what you're doing, God, is unfair. And by the way, chapter 18, for counseling and speaking to people, one of the chapters I turn to so frequently. It's brilliant. And so God then, after chapter 18, almost has a court case where he just lines out, here is why Jerusalem must be destroyed. Here's why. It's been hundreds and hundreds of years of this, and now the clock is up. The time has come you're going to the hospital, all right? So that's where we're at, chapter 17. I call chapter 17, the roots of rebellion. You can probably see why once I start reading verse 17, or verse one, chapter 17. So Ezekiel 17, one, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says Yahweh God, A great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took off the top of the cedar. That must be America. A great eagle, right? (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. New York City, right? No, it's not. Then he took a second of the land and planted it with fertile soil. And he placed it beside the abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine and its branches turned toward him and its roots remained where it stood. 
So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows, boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its bows, its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed from where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says Yahweh God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up at its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all of its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it away on the bed where it sprouted? What's that? This is what happens when Nebuchadnezzar comes, removes the real king, Jehoahaz, takes him back to Babylon, plants him there. In time, he flourishes. We'll get to that part of it. And then he sets up a second king named Zedekiah, who is actually Jehoahaz's uncle. And Jehoahaz makes a deal with Nebuchadnezzar, or Zedekiah makes a deal and says, okay, I'll be your vassal state. I'll obey. I'm good. But then he doesn't. He turns to Egypt and starts saying, I'm going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar while Jeremiah is telling him, don't do that. So here's what God, how God responds. Skip down, verse 15. But he, Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can he escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So he turns away from Nebuchadnezzar, turns to Egypt and says, hey, help me fight Nebuchadnezzar. And God says, I'm gonna pluck him up and I'm done with him. Can he, I love the end of verse 15, can he break the covenant and yet escape? God says to this guy that made a deal with Nebuchadnezzar, keep your word. I find that fascinating. You're not gonna break this covenant and get away with it. God even says to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar, I still want you to keep your word. How, is it, how important it is for you and me as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom to be people that keep our word. Jesus just put it like this. Let your yes be and let your no be. Anything more is of the evil one. I shouldn't need a lawyer to back up my word. I should just say my yes is my yes and I will keep it even to a pagan king. It does not matter. Here's what God says. It's the psalmist says that God keeps his word even above his name. God's word is so important to him. He says, I'm not breaking it. My name is built on that. I hope we as believers are people that keep our word, that we don't try to find a loophole, that we know what we've actually agreed to, we know what we've actually said, and we, even to our own hurt, we say, I will keep my word no matter what. That's what God expects of this king. And then keep kind of bouncing down. We're gonna bounce through this section pretty quick. Verse 22, this is what God says. You guys are kind of not good kings. Thus says Yahweh God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs 
a tender one, and I myself will plant it on the high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am Yahweh. I bring low the high tree and I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. What does verses 22 through 24 remind you of? God's talking about kings being these twigs off the top of a cedar tree. And they've broken their word and they're not good. And then God says, okay, you guys have failed. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a branch and I'm gonna plant it. And the branch that I plant, it's gonna grow into a giant tree where every bird will find a place underneath its branches. That reminds you of something Jesus says? It should. They're called the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13 where he says the kingdom's like a seed, it's planted, a mustard seed, and it grows up into a massive tree. It's, it's bigger than you can imagine. And in its branches, all kinds of birds come and find their home. And then you have this, I bring the high tree down and the low tree up. Jesus over and over had this saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The low is gonna be elevated. It's gonna be great in my kingdom. You have to be low, you have to be a servant. Like he reverses everything. What God is saying is here is this, the kings have failed. So I am bringing a king that will never fail. This is based on Isaiah 11, where you have this description of a tree that's cut down and the stump is called the stump of Jesse. And then in Isaiah 11, it says, out of the stump of Jesse, Jesse is David's father. Speaking of the Davidic line, it's been hacked down. There's nothing left of it. But then Isaiah 11 says this, there's good news a sprout comes out the side of this stump. The word sprout there is netzer, from where we get Nazarite, from where we get Nazareth. Who is the Nazarite? Who's the person from Nazareth? It's Jesus. That out of what seemed like a dead line comes a sprout and it's Jesus. And then you read through Isaiah 11, it's brilliant. It says, he renews everything. The planet is changed. The lion or the wolf lays down with the, lamb. The little nursing infant gets a cobra for a pet. You ever thought about giving your little baby a cobra for a pet? Ever been around a cobra? I have an India. They're freaky. They're the most freaky animal. Yet when the world is changed, when Jesus renews all things, Matthew 19, 11, or 28, excuse me, he says, man, kids are going to be able to play with serpents. There's going to be no poisonous thing. The wolf's gonna lie down with the lamb. So here's what you have. You have this first hint in Ezekiel of the end of the book, which is there's coming a new kingdom. Hints of Eden in here, a tree that's gonna provide sustenance. The, the dead tree flourishing, coming alive. Like there's all these hints of what will be messianic. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. So your kings, they're done. God says, I'm gonna do something that's gonna be brilliant. But then there's this objection. 
And I think it takes the whole book of Isaiah in a different direction, or Ezekiel in a different direction. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. This is where they start pointing the finger, and they say this, God is not fair. The word of Yahweh came to me. What do you, this is plural, he's not talking to Ezekiel, he's talking to the people. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares Yahweh God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son. It is mine. The soul who sins shall die. There's this proverb where people are saying, my life is screwed up because of my dad. And God says, I don't want you guys saying that anymore. Now, why would the people of Israel say something like that? My life screwed up because of some junk my dad did. Do they have reason to say that from the Bible? I think so. Read Exodus 20. Read Exodus 30, verse 7, where God says this, I will visit the sins of the father onto the, it's literally just third and fourth, but the idea is to the third and fourth generation. They have a reason to be saying this. Like, hey, the sins of the fathers are being right now, they're being put on us, right? They have something to say. I don't think there's a week that goes by, probably less than that, probably a month that goes by that I don't deal with someone that says this. My kids are screwed up because I sinned or my life is screwed up because my dad didn't hug me or my mom was this or whatever. Like we still say the same thing. My teeth are set on edge, why? Because my mom or because my kids or whatever it is. Two people like that, I almost always take them to chapter 18 of Ezekiel. I also balance it with Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, that says this, the parent will not be punished for the child's sin. And the child will not be punished for the father's sin, okay? So with anything, you always have to take every verse and look at it through the whole Bible. Ezekiel 18, Deuteronomy 24, all those kind of things. So what God does in Ezekiel 18 is this. He says, let me give you a case study. You're saying that, you're blaming your problems on your dad. Let's do a case study. And here's what he does. In verses five through nine, he talks about number one, a righteous dad. Like this is a really good dad, right? Verse five, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he doesn't eat upon the mountains. He's not going to temples and pagan places. He doesn't do idols. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife. Uh, he doesn't, he restores debts. He's just a good dude. And then it ends, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares Yahweh God. You got the righteous dad. But then he has, number two, verses 10 through 13, he has a rebellious son. His son's a bad kid. But if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, who eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, expresses the poor, he, he's just a bad dude. He shall not live, he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So you got the righteous dad, you got a rebel son, but then you have number third, 
you have a righteous grandson. Verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't take pledges. He's not an extortioner. He obeys my rules. Then it ends by saying, he shall not die for his father's iniquities. He shall surely live. So God gives this kind of case study. Hey, look, you got a righteous dad who has a rebel son. You ever know people like that? Like how honest is this chapter? There's been really good dads who's had bonehead kids. And then there's been really, really bad dads who just end up with these brilliant kids because the kids see, man, all the sins of my dad, I don't wanna be like my dad. I'm going to push off from that, verse 14. I'm gonna get away from that. I'm not going to do those things. So, so what God is saying is real simple. How you are is how I'm gonna treat you. I'm not gonna base it upon your parents or your grandparents. If you're righteous, great. If you're unrighteous, look out. And then he adds something, and this is what I use all the time. It's verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have, verse 23, I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares Yahweh God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Okay, so now you've got a wicked dude that repents and starts being righteous. God says, good job, I accept you. And then, verse 24, but when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that a wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done, past tense, shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is, present tense, guilty, and the sin he has committed for them, he shall die. So God says, hey, I've got this case study. I'm gonna treat you. Not, not based on who your parents are. And then he goes on to say, and I'm not gonna treat, treat you based on your past. I'm gonna treat you based on what you're doing right now. Both good and bad. Both the really good dude that's not now gone south. He didn't store up a treasury of good stuff because I care what he's doing right now. Or the really bad people. I, I'm not going to hold that against them. So the good person cannot rest in what he has done. And the bad person doesn't have to be worried if he was arrested for what he has done. Because God says, I'm gonna treat you based on what you're doing right now. No matter if you're arrested for Grand Theft Auto or whether you've been the president of the Rotary Club for 20 years, what I care about is what you're doing right now. I love this. There's a text in Philippians 3 that mirrors this. I think Paul kind of got what he talks about there. He says this, this one thing I do, 
I forget those things that lay behind and I press forward to the high mark that Christ has on me. And he says, you guys should have this same mind in you. That the person that feels like, man, I've been good my whole life. Why not just give it a break for a while? Beware. Beware of, if you're a guy that has pursued Christ for a long time, beware of saying this, well, I used to. Oh, to me, that's dangerous. Because the stuff that Paul talks about in Philippians 3 that he forgets, good stuff. Pharisee the Pharisee, according to the law, was blameless. He, he did it. He goes, I, I don't rest on that anymore. I keep pursuing Christ. And then, then the bad people, I always turn them to this. Lamentation 3.23. People that are guilt-ridden and feeling like, man, I'm a blow-it case, I always turn them to Lamentation 3.23 after this text. Because it says there that his mercies are new every morning. Isn't that an amazing statement? If I was God, I would say, you know what, that's too generous. I'm gonna give you new mercies every month. You're getting an allotment at the beginning of the month. If you've used them up, too bad. Or maybe an allotment at the beginning of the year. But how bad would that be for a person? Because here's what would happen to us. People that really blow it on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, they'd be like, well, I guess I used up all God's mercies for this year, so I might as well just go crazy for the whole year. Instead, what God's saying right here and what God says in Lamentations and what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter three is this. Don't, don't worry about your past, good or bad. What are you doing right now? What are you doing right now? You have a brand new start every single morning. It's why they call it the present. Use that gift. There is nothing more freeing than understanding this little chunk of scripture. Are you kidding me? God's not gonna dangle that over my head? Nope, nope. Why? Well, here's why. He tells us, it's the end of this chapter. Therefore, I will judge you, verse 30, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares Yahweh. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares Yahweh God. So turn and live. Turn and live. Don't be anchored by your past. Don't rest in your past. Turn and live. Every day, brand new mercies. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are not defined by our past. We're not held back by those things. We have something greater in us, greater than our parents, greater than our past, greater than our arrest record. We have something greater in us that can take all those things and redeem them. Genesis 50, 20 says that God can take what the enemy wants to use for evil and he can turn it for good. Judo theology. And we trust him. That's what this is saying. It's a brilliant chapter. So, God now has had this kind of accusation against him. You are unfair. You're punishing us for the sins of our forefathers. So now God's like, really? And what he's going to do from chapters 19 all the way through 24 is it's as if God is saying, I'm going to lay out my case one final time why Jerusalem needs to go have her blood drawn. I'm going to lay it out for you step by step. I'm going to show you that 
Jerusalem is diseased. I'm the divine physician. I'm showing it. So it's a really brutal section. Let's go. Here's reason number one, chapter 19. And it's the flawed or failed monarchy. Verse one, and you take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, what was your mother? A lioness. Among lions, she crouched. In the midst of young lions, she reared her cubs. If you know your Bible, way, 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 way back before this, in the book of Genesis, when Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, was about ready to die, he called all of his boys to him and he looked at each boy and he prophesied over them. And he came to Judah and he said this, Judah, you are a lion's whelp. And out of you, a scepter is gonna come and it will not depart from you until Shiloh comes, until Messiah comes. So Judah was the lion whelp that ruled over Israel. Well, that's who he's being talked about right here. So this chapter is all about the ruling class, the kings. Here's what it says of them. And she brought up one of her cubs and he became a young lion and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. Not a good thing for a king to do. The nations heard about him. He was caught up in their pit and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. When she saw that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he prowled among the lions. He became a young lion and he learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He seized their widows. Literally the word seized is new. Like Adam knew his wife. So he is raping their widows. He laid waste their cities and the land was appalled and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from provinces on every side and they spread their net over him and he was taken in their pit. Big idea is this. You can debate over who these kings are. The big idea is this. The king project has failed. That from David down to the current King Zedekiah, it's all been downhill. There's a couple of blips, a Hezekiah, a Josiah, a Jehoshaphat. But other than that, just been downhill. The kings are bad. The king project has failed. And so this last king, verse nine says this, with hooks, they put him in a cage and they brought him to the king of Babylon. That word cage there, it's the Hebrew for a wooded collar. The Hebrew for that same word is used today in Israel to speak of a dog collar. This king who devoured men and raped women, now he is treated like an animal with a collar on him, being controlled like a beast, enslaved. Please know this, and this is from cover to cover of this book. Please know this, sin enslaves you. The end of sin is always a collar put around your neck and it controls you. Romans 6 makes that, claim, makes that clear. Whoever I yield my body to, whatever I give my body to, I am its slave. So Romans then, Romans 6 says, yield your bodies to righteousness. Be a slave of righteousness then. Don't be a slave of these other things. Don't be controlled by them, owned by them. Perhaps if you're a little bit older like me, you know the four 
I'm 45 now, almost. <laughs> but I grew up on the four spiritual laws. Anyone grew up on those, right? All these kind of things like God has a plan for your life. Um, they're, they're good. You're a sinner. Jesus Christ died for you. Believe in him. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I've always thought there should be a fifth spiritual law. And you know what that is? Satan hates your guts. But I don't think it's gonna, I'm going to get added to it. I don't think they're adding. They're not taking any suggestions. But we, got, we should never forget that. Peter, over and over, is like, look out for this stuff. He hates your guts, and he wants to take you out. He wants to put a collar around you and enslave you to some kind of a sin. And that's what happens to these kings. So God says, reason number one, Jerusalem has to go down. The city of kings is this failed monarchy. They've all been bad. Number two, chapter 20, you guys have been faithless from the first. So he's going to go way, 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 way back to their beginning. In the seventh year, verse one of chapter 20, in the fifth month, on the 10th day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of Yahweh and sat before me. And the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, speak to the elder, elders of Israel and say to them, thus says Yahweh God, is it to inquire of me that you've come? As I de live, declares Yahweh God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says Yahweh God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am Yahweh, your God. On that day, I swore to them, that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey and most glorious of all lands. So God says, he goes way, way back, not to Abraham, but to the Exodus. And he says, listen, guys, I chose you. I helped you. I brought you out. What'd you do to me? Look at verse seven. And I said to them, cast away the detestable thing from your eyes on every side and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. I grabbed you out. I wanted you to come with me. But what happened very early on in the Exodus? The golden calf. So immediately they turn away from God, turn back to the golden calf. A couple months after that, the 12 spies go in. 10 of them come back, say, we can't make it in. God's not big enough. And so God says, okay, fine. I'll start over with your children. So that's what he says here. Skip down to verse 18. And I said to their children in the wilderness, do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules nor defile yourself with their idols. I am Yahweh, your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is Deuteronomy, by the way. It's the second giving of the law. Okay, your parents got it. Now you have the same opportunity. And keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between you and that I, you may know that I am Yahweh, your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbath. So the kids, they blew it as well. Right? I tried with your dads. They blew it. I gave your kids a shot at it. They blew it. And then 
Look down at verse 25. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. Verse 26. And I defiled them through their very gifts in their offering up of their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am Yahweh. What's that about? God says, I gave you my rules, my Torah, so they might live. And then, verse 25, I gave you statutes that were not good and rules that would not bring life. I defiled them through their very gifts and the offering up their firstborn on the altar of Moloch. What is this? Well, some commentaries say it's sarcasm. I think, personally, that the claims of the priestly class at this point was the worship of Moloch was God-ordained. So you have the priest, and we'll get to this in a later chapter. The priests were saying, this is how we worship God now. We offer our firstborn on the frying hot arms of this God. That's what we do. And God is pleased with this. Why do I believe that? Because the same thing happens all the time. That we'll justify sin by saying God condones it. Happens all the time. Premarital sex. I talk to people, young people, wanting me to marry them. You guys having sex? Yeah, but it's okay because we're getting married. Oh, could you show me chapter and verse on that one? Because I haven't found that one. The the one that says it's okay because we're getting married. I'd like to find that one because I can't. It's not right. So we're always doing stuff just like this. And they don't bring life, they bring death. Homosexuality now. Homosexuality is not wrong, according to a lot of people now. The homosexuality the Bible talked about was Um, random, not committed, monogamous homosexuality. But committed, monogamous homosexuality is fine. I said, again, could you show me chapter and verse on that? Well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. He didn't. Read Matthew 19. I think he did. I think he did. But we find all kinds of ways to justify whatever we're doing. I talked to a guy a couple days ago. You know what? I'm not going to pay taxes anymore. I said, really, why not? Because I don't like the way the government uses my money. Oh, so when Jesus said, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, there's another little verse there that says, unless you don't like the way he spends the money, because the Caesar spent their money on orgies and kind of bad stuff too. I don't find that verse either. We'll find all kinds of ways to justify whatever we want to do. That's what they're doing right here. I'll figure it out. I'll justify whatever I think I want to do. That's why the Bible says this, be holy as I'm holy. Don't justify, don't go that way. Here's what sin is. Sin is a wedge that once you let a little bit in, Satan just pounds that thing in, opens you up and just dumps garbage in you. Look at anyone that starts just fiddling with sin. I think about the worship of the golden calf. The worship of the golden calf is kind of cute, you know? It's golden, it's beautiful metal. It's a calf. Like, who is afraid of a calf? Anyone's like, man, look out for that calf. It will get you. Be afraid of the bull with the horns. No one fears a calf. It's cute. It's kind of, oh, that's that's cute. But then the end here, verse 26 says, worshiping this guy named Moloch, 
which was a God that you would heat up and that you would take your firstborn and you would offer your firstborn on its arms and it would sizzle to death. They start with, oh, it's so cute and pretty. And they end up with Moloch. That's the way sin always is. It starts out cute and pretty and it ends up with Moloch. Pornography, cute, funny. I've talked to men that have so got into pornography, where they're at right now, they would be arrested and put in prison because of where it's gone. It's Moloch. It takes you down. It does not stay still. Drugs, whatever it is. Starts out, oh, it's so much fun. Where does it end though? That's sin. It's like a wedge. Once you open yourself up, Satan hammers it down and then opens you up to all kinds of stuff, junk. Golden calf to Moloch. I see it happen over and over and over and over. That's why the Bible says, be holy. Yield your body a servant to righteousness because this is going to open you up. Do not justify garbage. Don't justify garbage. If you've been unrighteous, chapter 18 says, repent and start being righteous. He offers that to you and to me. So they've been faithless from the first. Then verse 33 Here's what God says. It's a little bit of good news in the midst of a ton of really bad news. As I live, declares Yahweh God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered and a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares Yahweh God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I'm gonna bring you back, but I'm gonna bring you back purified and holy and righteous. Chapter 18, right? Failed monarchy, faithless from the first. Then chapter 21 is almost an interlude where God says this, I'm gonna be the judge. You might think it's a, a nation or another power or a soldier, but it's me. I'm sharpening my sword. I'm bringing it. It is me. So you might say it's unfair, but the only way you could say it's unfair is if you were perfectly righteous, but I know your heart and I know your mind and I know what you've done and I'm the judge and I will judge righteously, okay? So then there's this fascinating little text, verse 18, where God makes it really clear, I'm guiding this thing. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 18. The word of Yahweh came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost and make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way. So here's what he's told. Make make a little scale model of the road that leads from Babylon into the Middle East, up into Jerusalem or into Rabbah and have a sign there like, hey, whatever, 15 miles to Jerusalem, 25 miles to Rabbah. 
and act like the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is there trying to figure out which way should I go? Which city should I I attack? And then it says, he stands at the way to use divination. He shakes the arrow. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver. So here's what this means. Back in those days, if you want to find out God's will, you had these kind of ways, the gods. One of them was, if you were a soldier, you would take your quiver, you'd put these arrows in it, you'd write the name of all your enemies on it, you'd start shaking the the can of arrows or the quiver of arrows, whichever arrow fell out first, whichever name was on it, you would say, okay, that's who I'm supposed to attack. The gods have spoken. The teraphim, they were family gods. They represented like an ancestor who was super powerful. So it was probably necromancy. You were trying to call up essentially the spirit of your forefather and ask him, who should I attack? So really demonic. And the last one was you look at the liver, you would cut open an animal, you'd let the liver drop out or the entrails drop out. And there were people that can interpret it like, well, you know, this liver, because it's bulbious, you should attack this place. I think the Pentagon still uses that one. Right, so it's kind of superstitious, these, these, these things like, hey, this is how we're gonna do it, divination. And we can look back at these things and say, man, that's just stupid. Do we do similar things though? Has anyone here ever played Bible roulette? Where you're like, God, which way do I go? Hmm. And while he still spoke to them, the messenger came down to him and said, this is trouble from the Lord. Oh no, (laughs) that was totally random. We do stuff like that. Where we take, you know, superstitious kind of ways of, of trying to find God's will, not the patient kind of perseverance of an Abraham waiting sometimes 25 years. We do similar, similar things. But here's what God is saying. He's saying, listen, he's gonna do all this divination, but I will drive him to Jerusalem. So he's shaking the arrows and he's cutting the liver and he's talking to his teraphim But you know what? I am, it says here, end of this verse. Into his right hand, verse 22, comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build a siege tower. But to them, it will seem like a false divination. They have swarmed solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. God says, he's gonna do all this stuff, but I'm gonna control it. He'll shake the arrows and he'll look at the liver, but I'm gonna make sure he does not go to Rabbah. He comes to Jerusalem. I'm doing that. How interesting that is to me. Pagan king, pagan practices, and God says, I sovereignly control all that fascinates me. If you know Nebuchadnezzar's story, it goes on brilliantly. Daniel chapter four, he gets saved. He becomes becomes a believer in Yahweh. In fact, we probably have the Magi because of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and all this kind of stuff. So you can look at stuff and be like, well, then why don't I shake the arrows? I'm trying to figure out God's will. Maybe I should do this. God will use bad methods to get his will accomplished, it doesn't mean that we use them. God used this last year, the funeral for a 15 year old girl to get people saved. 
But you know what? That's not the best way. I don't want that ministry. So yes, God can redeem and God can use those things. There's a better way. The New Testament says that we are to be those that pray, seek his face, listen to the counsel of the saints, stay in the story of scripture, and that, that begins to inform us through his spirit and we start making godly decisions. I've called, I call it new covenant Christianity, that what's been placed in you is God's spirit. And if you will stop and pray and patiently think about things, most often you make the right decisions. It's that simple. We don't have to do all this crazy stuff, right? So God says, I'm coming, I'm gonna do it. Number four, chapter 22, I'll be super fast. This is his closing argument. So verse six, why am I coming? The princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Bad leaders. Father and mother are treated with contempt. You're breaking the commands. You're not honoring your mom and dad. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. You are not kind to strangers. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You're not taking care of widows and orphans. Verse 10, in you, men uncover their father's nakedness. When you see that uncovering of the father's nakedness, that means the son has slept with his dad's wife. Probably not his mom. Uh, there's polygamy then. It's just this gross sexuality, right? Verse 13, uh, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made at the blood that you have in your midst. This chapter just goes on and on and on and on and on. Verse 26, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. That's why I believe when we talked about Moloch, was the worship ordained by the priests? I believe so. They were somehow figuring out a loophole saying, hey, God is approving of this activity. So it's just, God's just saying, what more am I supposed to do? Then you have chapter 23. Anyone read chapter 23? Okay, chapter 23 is horrific. I'll read a couple verses, not the horrific ones. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. Therefore, their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Aholoha, that means her own tent, was the name of the older. And Aholabah, which means my tent is with her, was the name of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Aholaha is Samaria and Aholabah is Jerusalem. Aholaha played the whore while she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians. Okay, verse 11, her sister Aholabah saw this and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. I call this chapter Twisted Sisters. It's a really, really bad chapter. It's like chapter 16. Remember we did a little bit of chapter 16? Didn't do the whole thing. Chapter 23 is even worse. Same idea though. Why does God do it twice? Because of chapter 18. God, you're unfair. Oh, really? As a parent, have you ever had to do things twice? Three times, four times, a hundred times? Because your kids are like, you're not fair. Okay, fine, we'll do this again. Let me give you the reasons again. Let's go through why again. And this time God adds a whole bunch more color to it. You don't have to read it. You, there's a whole bunch more color in it. And then verse 39, he ends by saying this pretty much. For when they had slaughtered their children, in sacrifice to their idols, 
On the same day, they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. It seems like the final straw for God is when kids are hurt. That's when God just says, okay, I'm done. I gave you grace and I gave you grace and I tried repentance and I tried to be good and I protected you. But my final straw is kids. You're not protecting the children and I'm done. It makes me really ask myself, how are we doing in Grant's Pass with the kids of Grant's Pass? Are we taking care of them? How are they doing? I sat with Kevin Lampson, the guy who founded and started Hearts with a Mission in Medford and now has one here in Grant's Pass just a week ago. And I asked him, I said, how are we doing? He goes, well, he goes, kids are learning stuff and moving in directions that are at the speed of light now. Because of where we're at with technology, where it's just, it, it, things are moving at the speed of light. And so he said, we have 12 teenagers right now here at Hearts with a Mission. We need 12 mentors, 12 people that are positive, godly, love Jesus. They're gonna be consistent around them, can answer questions that are not gonna get burnt out by them because they'll try to. We need that. I said, okay, I'll start praying about that. 12 people. Then just yesterday, I sat with the superintendent of District 7, just a great conversation. I asked him the same question. How are we doing with kids in Grants Pass? He goes, here's what breaks my heart. Grants Pass, District 7, pretty good district. He goes, we graduate 73%. That means when I, when I see kids come by me, I count one, two, three, not gonna make it. One, two, three, not gonna make it. One, two, three, not gonna make it. He says, that breaks my heart. But I can count one, two, three, four. And he goes this, here's what we know now. In the fifth grade, we can identify those that probably are not going to make it. By the eighth grade, we know 100%. These kids aren't going to make it. By grades, kind of the, their character, how often they attend class, you start having these metrics where you start, yeah, yeah. So they tried this pilot program. And it was, that they mentored some of these freshmen coming in that they kind of knew, maybe, maybe they need some help. And he said, they flourished for a year, but the program was only a year. So then, now these kids are in the 10th grade and now they're all sinking back down to where they were before because they've lost that mentoring, that difference maker in their life. How are we doing with kids in Grants Pass? If we want to see Grants Pass transformed, that's where we start. My prayer for 2017 is the kids of Grants Pass are cared for. I just talked, just randomly ran into a couple out here. And they're planning on adopting two foster kids, two twin kids from Cave Junction. Man, it just blesses my heart. That's how we change Grants Pass. We start caring for the kids, saying, widows and orphans, pure, undefiled religion, widows and orphans. God's final straw is child sacrifice. If the kids aren't doing well, things are gonna change. Chapter 24 is the siege of Jerusalem. God just says it's finished. In the ninth year, in the 10th month, uh, on the 10th day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, write down the name of the, this day, this very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, 
set on the pot, set it on, pour in the water, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choice ones of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it, seed bones in it. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. God just says, I'm putting the fire on and I'm burning the impurity out of this. Then we get, and we're almost done, I think the saddest chapter in the Old Testament. Verse 15, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down, sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded." Ooh, Ezekiel, your wife's going to die and you can't cry. And God calls her the delight of his eyes. It was not the old ball and chain. It wasn't the nag. This was the woman he was in love with. And God says, I'm going to take her. I read this and part of me just says, man, That seems so harsh. I mean, she was a good woman. Ezekiel lay on his side for 430 days. You think your husband lays around a lot. 430 days straight. And God says, I'm taking her. And I sit and I kind of read that and and I've been pondering like, what do you do with that? Like, what do you do with that? It reminded me of a great man named George Mueller. He loved orphans, started the orphan thing probably in England. He's main dude, had massive faith. One morning he had all the orphans there, 40 of them. They're sitting at the table, they have no food. He says, hey, let's pray. Let's bless the food. They're like, there's no food to bless. We're blessing the food. When he finished praying, there's a knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. Opens the door. He goes, hey, my milk cart just overturned and I've got milk and bread on it. You want it? Bring it on in. He was that kind of guy. His daughter gets sick. Rheumatic fever, the whole church prays, she gets better. He preaches a message on Psalm 119, 68, which says this, God, you are good and you always do what's good. I mean, that's easy to preach that message when your sick daughter, sick daughter gets better. One year, almost exactly, his wife gets rheumatic fever. The church gets together, they pray, she dies. At her funeral, he preached a message on Psalm 119, verse 68. God, you are good and you always do what's right. And he said, there's three reasons why I say that. Because God gave me his wife. He let me have her for a long time. And now he has taken her home and I will see her again. I read these things and you know what's troubling? But ultimately, there's something that we have to realize. We often want Jesus to fit into our thing. But the truth is, we fit into his thing. And Jesus says that if you will lose my life for my sake, you'll find it. If you're one that says, okay, Jesus, my life is not my own. My life belongs to you. 
Take it, use it. He says, you will find life and you will find it abundantly. But when we try to make Jesus fit into our thing, it never works because he's the king. So ultimately, here's what I know. Ezekiel's wife probably served an incredible purpose. There are people that saw this witness repent and they're saved and they're gonna be in eternity. And Ezekiel, he knew this. This life, it's just chapter one. Do you know that? We put a lot of emphasis on chapter one, but there's a whole bunch of chapters to be written. It's called eternity. And without chapters two through infinity, chapter one never makes sense. We'll always cling to things we should not cling to. We'll always have the incorrect perspective. But when we realize this is just chapter one and Ezekiel's wife, she's a queen right now. She's a queen ruling and reigning with Jesus. Then we can put things in perspective. Okay, okay, chapter one, that's all it is. In the new year, is Jesus fitting into your plan? Or are you saying, Jesus, how do I fit in your plan? One will be a struggle because <laughs> you're fighting the king. The other will flourish because you're in line with history. I pray that we're a group of people that says, Jesus, I want to fit in with your plan. Where are we going? What are you doing? My life is yours. That's how things flourish. That's what Ezekiel knew and he understood. And he was able to sigh, but not cry. So Jesus, I pray for each of us here. I pray that we would know that you are good and you always do what is right. And because of that faith, we would trust no matter what has happened in 2016 or what is going to happen in 2017, we'd trust you that we would be people that live in the present, not being anchored by past mistakes or resting on past successes, but we would be those that adamantly pursue you, forgetting those things that lay behind, reaching forward to the high mark that you've placed on each one of us, that we would trust you. We would trust you with our kids. We would trust you with our marriages. We would trust you with our finances. We would trust you with our city. We would trust you with our destinies, that we would trust you. Grow our trust, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.